This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. It is Refugee Week and on Thursday night there's an exhibition opening for one night only called Our Shared Humanity. It showcases the art of refugees and people seeking asylum. Um, people come from all over the world, of course, to seek protection and refuge in Australia and these artworks speak to the often half, harsh journeys but also tell of resilience, love, strength and beauty. And the exhibition is presented by CoHealth, a not-for-profit community health service, which among its many roles provides refugee support services. And this morning we have two guests to talk about uh, the exhibition. Aziza, who's uh, founding president of Melbourne Artists for Asylum Seekers. Uh, she's an Iranian asylum seeker living here in Melbourne who spent nearly six months living in detention. And we also have Amelia... Uh, uh, I was going to do this. No, that's okay. It's a tough one. Tawangawongo. Tawangawongo. <laughs> and I had it down pat until I looked at it again. Who's a refugee health nurse uh, with a great introduction. Welcome, no, both of you. And thanks for coming in. And before we start talking about the exhibition, which um, is happening on Thursday, can we talk first about CoHealth? Because CoHealth is putting on uh, the exhibition, but you're not an artist group per se. I mean, you you provide health services. That's there. Yeah, that's correct. So it's a bit of a it's a bit of an unusual fit, I suppose you might think, for a health service. But I sort of um, in our roles, I'm a refugee health nurse, and uh, so we provide. Um, care coordination services for people who are seeking asylum and refugees uh, once they've arrived to Australia and um, I suppose in that our role also involves a great deal of advocacy and so this kind of seemed like a natural extension of that so uh, to give a platform or another kind of un- uh, a way that we can advocate for people that we work with in a format um, using art as a, that medium to have the, have the discussion so an, unorthodox but it seems like it's, it's turned out to be quite a good fit. Yeah and Aziza <laughs> thanks for coming in as well and you're um, founding president of Melbourne Artists for Asylum Seekers. Tell us about your organisation. Thank you for having me here. Uh, I've joined Melbourne Artists for Asylum Seekers since I was living in detention centre and I strongly believe in the uh, healing power of art because as an asylum seeker being in this state is that living in a limbo as we all know that. And art has given me the strength to live in the community, to collaborate and connect with individuals and groups and organizations and being able to live my life to the full as in the same time as being an asylum seeker, having no rights and no secure life. So that's why I really uh, admire the role of MAFA in the community. And we've tried to uh, empower individuals asylum seekers and people with refugee background to be able to express their feelings and communicate and connect with the wider Australian community, even though they most of them face language barriers. So I think MAPA's done well so far. I'm so happy to be part of exhibition at Cole Health as well. Very happy to have you. <laughs> <laughs> and so did, did you have a, a background in art or is it something that you, you kind of really first engaged with while in detention? I think my background in art has been, been art critic and looking at art in a very critic way. Coming to Australia, I've suddenly found this freedom of being an artist and a kind of broke through those barriers of sheltered life and art art critic and stepping into an amazing life and artist and finding joy and pleasure just to communicate visually through art. 
So that's all my background has been with art, art criticism. And yeah, I mean, you are also you have worked as a curator as well as part of as part of MAFA. Yes, I've cur- curated five art exhibitions since 2014 in uh, Australia, and also I have uh, I'm a creator director for an upcoming exhibition, which is uh, in. Uh, 30 years on Friday 30th of this month and it's called Awakening and it will be exhibited at Abbotsford Commons and Hellier's Gallery. And as well as putting on the, these exhibitions you also have workshops as part of MAFA. Tell us about those and how they work. Because I've started from joining um, art workshops and uh, detention centre, so with art volunteers, we have uh, continued to run workshops for asylum seekers and refugees living in the community now who are facing um, language barrier as uh, as well as um, uh, isolation from the community because of all these restrictions that are on our visas and our lifestyle. It kind of lead people to depression and isolation. So MAFA has tried to run regular workshops to encourage people, whether they have artistic background or not, to join these workshops and practice from the from sketching just with chuckles sketching and pencils right up until uh, making oil paintings and we have seen positive impact from that we've seen uh, artists who have suffered from depression and then suddenly when they've seen their first uh, artwork in an exhibition it has lifted them up and they completely came out of that depression mood and became an active member of the community so yeah so the art process that has power, mm-hmm. well, the yes. process, but also the... Also the, the workshops the, that the we workshops run in the community. And the exhibitions yeah. itself. So, yeah. I, I mean, you work with uh, asylum seekers as part of your work at yeah. CoHealth. So are you seeing that, that benefit of participating most, in art as well? Most definitely, yeah. And I think that a lot of the work that we do, people will be uh, making referrals to our team and often it's for the coordination of complex, you know, clinical issues. But other times it's for things like, you know, the referral will be based around the person's uh, mental illness or mental health issues or isolation. Um, and sometimes our role is, it can be as, as simple as getting people integrated into community programs, much like the ones that MAFA runs and other similar things um, around the Northwest catchment that we cover. Um, because we know that once we can kind of address that isolation, which is a huge issue in this community, um, that we can start to break down those walls and people can be a part of um, a community that they, you know, that they feel valued by. And with that value and purpose, obviously, like you said, has tremendous benefits to people's mental health and overall well-being, for sure, yeah. And I guess, I mean, there's a whole range of challenges that people might face depending on their individual circumstances, how yes, they came yeah. to Australia, how long they were kept in detention and which facility, facility they were in and, and so on. But I imagine one of the the major challenges still depending on when they did arrive here is the fact that often people don't have work rights or study rights and simply don't have a lot to do during the day so art from that perspective can provide that sort of outlet to be with people and and creating something most definitely and i think i've sort of seen its evolution of of the impact of art um my previous role was in detention as a nurse um, in some of the immigration detention centers where our colleagues in the mental health teams would use art as a therapy technique for people who were actively very um you know suffering from major uh, depression anxiety and other disorders um either related to their trauma and torture experiences or or um the experience of being detained in and of itself 
itself and having now been on the other side of the fence so to speak and, and working with folks once they've been released and out, out in the community um, yeah the impact of filling in that time of great uncertainty was something that's uh, really meaningful and expressive um, yeah it's definitely been uh, you know incredible as a tool and something for people to do in this really uncertain time how how extensive are the supports for refugees and asylum seekers living in our community amelia yeah i think so um contrary to popular belief our refugee program so people who arrive from offshore um on uh, the different visa subclasses on the humanitarian program um the the actual uh, programs um in and of itself is quite um Extensive and people do get really great support when they do arrive. However, the treatment of our people seeking asylum is an entirely different situation altogether. And the fact that the two don't mirror each other um, and that there is such a discrepancy in the care that we're willing to give people if they come the way that we want them to versus the care that we simply don't provide or that we struggle to provide um, to folks who have come by an alternative method because of needing to flee to safety is, um, yeah, it's, it's quite stark, those differences. So the, the support that you can provide really depends on decisions out of Canberra, policy decisions? Yeah, definitely. I've always said that I've never had a, a role where your job from day to day might be different depending on decisions made in the cabinet overnight and as Suzanne and I were just discussing on the way here how there never seems to it never seems to amaze us both of how um you know the people in the corridors of power come up with a different way of um uh, marginalising people or, or making the process incredibly difficult for people um, every other day. But we, we do our best. Um, there's an incredible community of support, uh, whether it's the NGO sector, like people like the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre and RISE and other groups, or it's the contracted providers um, who run settlement. We all try and work together and provide the best support we can um, based on the sort of restrictive environment of um, resettlement services. I mean, and organisations like yours, as these are, that are there to, to help people in the community that are um, that are essentially set up primarily for that purpose. Yes, definitely, yeah. And so um, it's not only uh, kind of, uh, I suppose, visual artworks appearing at this exhibition. There's also a film screening this coming Thursday. Can you tell us a little bit about the film? Uh, the film screening has been produced by Molly George, who is also one of the art volunteers in MAFA and also... She's a very active member of the group and she's been producing all these um, movie animations throughout every exhibition. And she basically talks a lot and communicates a lot with asylum seekers. And she's been knowing her, she really tries to understand the situation that we are in and their emotional challenges that we go through and she beautifully visualize it in, and make it into animation so i encourage everyone to see and follow her facebook as well and um, just in addition to the the, the work that MAP has been doing as well, with the uh, exhibition that's coming up on Thursday, we've engaged a media company to put together a short film about the artists um, that whose art we're exhibiting. Um, so there will be um, folks who are like as I said, who have um, you know graciously offered their time to speak uh, on film, and there are also other people who weren't able to speak for themselves because of ongoing detention. And we also have some special pieces that have been sent to us from Manus Island and Nauru 
through. So, um, you know, where possible, we um, paid artists for their time if if they, of course, had work rights and other pieces were were donated um, because we sort of thought there's... um, giving people that value in their work and paying them for their art was really important to us as part of the process, as I said, where, where possible. And um, for those that were able to, they've uh, submitted answers to some uh, questions about their art and their artistic process and their stories, and those stories are being read by some uh, sort of Aussie personalities. So we've got uh, David Bridie and Dave Graney, who I believe are triple R... Uh, broadcasters yeah we'll claim them yeah yeah you'll claim them so david brady dave green we've got tom ballard and we've also got uh, tom yancek from big scary so we've enlisted you know some great voices to uh, speak on behalf of people who are otherwise voiceless at the moment and is there plans to release that film is there a way people can watch it if they can't make the exhibition on thursday yeah certainly obviously where our main concern is the privacy of our Mm. artists and um anything related to their ongoing protection claims so, um, but we will uh, endeavour to release something that's um, uh, uh, available for viewing online, either through our uh, CoHealth YouTube page or through P10 Media, but we can certainly let the listeners know through Triple R. Fantastic. Amelia Toongo-Ongo is with us. She's with CoHealth and also Ziza, who is with the Melbourne Artists for Asylum Seekers, uh, an exhibition involving both groups and uh, some incredible artworks going to be on display this coming Thursday. And uh, the details are uh, it's 22nd of June from 6.30 till 10pm at The Line, which is number two Ewers Street in Footscray. And you can find out more information on the CoHealth website. It's one night only. So this is high stakes it's high stakes <laughs> the objective hopefully after this we've we've tried to sort of work hard to curate something a little bit different um in terms of the people that we've invited so we know that uh, often in our sector there's a lot of things like these wonderful events across a really rich cultural program across um refugee week so we've sort of reached out a little further and we've invited creatives artists the business community because um, we want to have this conversation in wider circles and we want to get the people outside of the echo chamber talking about this stuff as well so after the one night event, the plan is that CoHealth will offer this um, up for exhibition. So if it's your school, your business place, if you're the CEO of some major company and want to show this work and have a conversation, um, you're welcome to approach us. We'd love to have you. Well, that's really good. And and when is the next exhibition, Aziza, with um, with Mafa? Where where are you? What what is ne- your next next exhibition? Is called Awakening. It's at Sand Helios Gallery in Abbotsford Convent on 30th of this month. Friday 6pm and everyone's welcome to join, no bookings required Wonderful, thank you both for coming in it's been really great and uh, and marking Refugee Week with this exhibition uh, Our Shared Humanity It is Refugee Week and to talk more about how the class action um, has play- played out and also um, to reflect more broadly uh, during Refugee Week we spoke by Skype from Geneva to uh, David Mann from Refugee Legal David, we heard um, the Immigration Minister the other day say that the human rights payout, the $70 million to over 1,900 Manus detainees, was a prudent outcome for the Australian taxpayer. But others are interpreting this as the government not wanting to go to court and hear evidence come out of how asylum seekers have been treated offshore. How should we interpret this, do you think? How are you interpreting? Oh, look, I think the thir- first thing is that if the government was so confident of the legality of what it's doing to people on Manus Island, and that is, um, you know, over four years of um, incarceration uh, for most of that time and... Um, 
and the infliction of such severe harm and uh, and trauma. I mean, if they were so confident of the legality of, of that treatment, uh, you'd expect them to defend it to the bitter end, and they haven't. I mean, normally settlements of this kind uh, indicate uh, that the party that's settling, and here it's the government, uh, were trying to avoid a public airing of all of the evidence. You know, re- what really is a really strong body of evidence from independent um, sources such as the UN Refugee Agency and, you know, Amnesty International and other sources, uh, which has, uh, you know, very powerfully uh, indicated uh, that the treatment of people has been cruel and human and degrading for for all of that time. So um, I think that in many ways what we should interpret this as the government trying to avoid a public airing of, of this evidence and the need to defend it. And so it, it's clearly a momentous outcome that the government will be paying um, $70 million to these 1,900-plus asylum seekers in addition to the legal fees for them. And I guess for those uh, claimants, it is a good outcome. Um, it goes some way towards uh, compensating them for the, the horrors that they said they have uh, lived through in Manus Island. But on balance, do you think this is a good outcome? Because as you mentioned, if we had have gone through the whole process of properly airing all the many things that these people have said happened to them on Manus Island, then potentially the government might be made more accountable for that? Well, look, um, it's a very interesting question because, I, you know, at one level it, it appears that when uh, the money is distributed, uh, the payout, um, that at one level it will re- result in payments that are being suggested about perhaps even, you know, $35,000 per person for... Uh, for you know what what is you know four years of, of torment and um, and and such severe harm such mistreatment that may well you know be irreparable harm uh, and for people who still have uh, no uh, home to go to in in the sense of there has been nothing in this case to address the fundamental issue at stake and that is uh, evacuating these uh, men. Uh, many of whom are, have been found to be refugees to safety so that they can rebuild their lives with dignity. You know, I mean, if, if I could put it this way, I mean, they're, they're being, um, you know, offered uh, for, for that ordeal, um, you know, perhaps $35,000, but with no bank account um, or home, you know, in, in, a, in a metaphoric and actual sense um, for many. And so I, I, I think that one of the big questions here is... Um, what will this do to actually address that fundamental issue uh, of ensuring that the men are evacuated to safety so they can rebuild their lives? Because um, this settlement doesn't, uh, at, it, at its heart, do that. And what do we know of the refugee response to the payout, David? With these types of settlements uh, in class actions, uh, it does require for each person their consent to the settlement. And I, I, I would... Uh, I'm. I'm fairly sure so far, without going into detail, uh, that the response to this uh, settlement is is very mixed. Um, I mixed because the question uh, I understand for very and, and you know I understand this um, from a range of sources uh, that uh, there are some, perhaps many, uh, who are very concerned uh, about the government avoiding. A pro- proper public scrutiny of the of what's been done to them, what's been done to these men, and having to have that evidence aired in a, in a court, 
uh, and the government have to explain its conduct. I mean, if the case proceeded and a decision ruled in favour of these men uh, about the claims of um, you know, negligence and false imprisonment, um, it would uh, it would certainly um, be a, perhaps a more powerful indictment of what's happened on Manus Island than anything that's gone before it because it's in a public arena. Uh, it's a decision by a judge with both sides having put their case. And my understanding is that there are some men, perhaps many, uh, who who would be very keen uh, to see that happen. And I suppose going to what you just said there, will it potentially lead to more class actions? And I suppose when it comes to taxpayers' money, are we likely to see further liabilities open up? Uh, yeah, I, I, I think that it, it is very possible. Um, it's certainly not the first time that that uh, cases like these have been considered. There's certainly been attempts in Australia uh, to bring cases of this kind, uh, and I think one of the one of the things which is very important about this case is that it does require the government to to, to face uh, the prospect of meeting these issues in court, meeting these, these controversies in court. Because I think one one thing that has happened o- over the years is that uh, you know successive governments have denied any wrongdoing, they've denied any liability, they've denied mistreatment uh, and we don't have a judicial decision on that kind of mistreatment uh, on this scale and so I think that we are likely uh, to see more cases of this kind and these cases, um, they, at one level, they do force the government to confront the, uh, the, the issues in court, the evidence in court. But they also potentially uh, could well send a message to uh, governments in the future uh, that if you subject people to this kind of conduct, uh, that it may well be found to be unlawful. I think the real question, though, uh, you know, on the other side, is whether um, it also points to the government being able to put a price on this kind of inhumanity, you know, and so that... Uh, that successive governments have sought to settle these matters generally out of court, often with uh, confidentiality clauses, which mean that uh, you know that those that are compensated can't uh, say publicly how they were compensated or the price, which could you know in, in some cases have been uh, my understanding very high. Uh, and I think that's the the other real that this is where a real concern is whether governments are just able to put a price on this um, you know, conduct this mistreatment and get out of it without the public being able to fully know and uh, what happened and also to be able to see uh, the consideration of that evidence uh, in a formal setting. And that inhumanity and the, the punitive approach to people seeking asylum has been part of Australia's government policy for some time and there's, I mean, virtually uh, bipartisan support on sort of the the broad uh, trend and, and um, ideals at the heart of Australia's border security and asylum seeker policy. Do you think that this class action, given that it has been, um, I mean, relatively unprecedented in terms of the number of asylum seekers who were part of it, would make uh, either the government or major political parties, Labor or Liberal Party, for example, rethink their asylum seeker policy? I think that's a, a really a, a really uncertain you know, dynamic at the moment in, in our country because uh, although this settlement um, is, you know, in total uh, a, a very large sum, 
and you know it hasn't you know it, it's historically it's been suggested historically it's um it's unprecedented it's the largest payout uh, to asylum seekers in a compensation claim uh, that has in australia I think at another level we have, we have to put it into perspective that um, whether it's seventy or ninety million dollars, and both figures have been uh, have been uh, reported. Uh, let's put that in context. This offshore processing regime in the first three years of the Pacific Solution Mark II, which started in two thousand and twelve, in the first three years uh, it cost uh, the Australian taxpayer over ten billion dollars, and so in that context. Um, that's why I say that um, it's unclear whether we're going to see, I think, the, this this case um, ushering in a, a new era in terms of the government's response. What I do think is it sends a message to any government, this one and others, that if people are subjected to this kind of treatment, uh, they can expect uh, to have to explain it in a court, um, whether that involves a direct... Deter- you know, whether it directly... Uh, you know, affects a government's conduct and conduct in the future when we look at what price uh, governments have been prepared to expend to inflict this kind of inhumanity on people, I think is very unclear. But what I do think is one of the broader implications may well be um, that uh, it may, this case may well also raise questions um, of a similar nature about, for example, the treatment of people in Nauru. Uh, and uh, and whether we may see uh, litigation in relation to you know the incarceration of people in similar similar circumstances on the route. David Manns with us, and we're speaking about the recent class action payout to uh, Manus asylum seekers. Uh, we we heard eight months ago that there was a US deal. Um, what's come of that, and are we likely to see any uh, resettlement of the men on Manus in the in the coming months or, or years, David? Well, um, it's very uncertain. I, there are certainly uh, suggestions that uh, there will uh, that people are being considered for resettlement to the US, and that I, it's quite clear that the US uh, is engaging in a process of interviews and screening of people on Nauru and Manus Island. So there's no doubt that there have been actions taken by the US, you know, US government to consider. Resettlement of some of the some of the refugees held in both places, but I, I think that one of the real questions is, uh, if so, um, when? Uh, because people uh, are suffering so severely, and it's ongoing, and it's it's at a situation which is like a permanent emergency. But I also think there's a big question around. Uh, uh, if people are resettled to the US, and you know, there are, you know, fairly significant indications that that will happen for some, I think there's also a real question around how many people will be resettled because we're still talking in the rural Manus Island of over 2,000 people and then there are over 300, 300 people who are subject to be returned there from Australia who, you know, who have been brought back for medical treatment and other purposes. So the figure that was... You know, bandied around when uh, you know details started to hit the media about the U.S. resettlement deal. 
and the numbers were around about sort of 1,250. You know, that was one of the numbers put up as that up to 1,250 people may well be resettled. So the point is that uh, on the figures that have been put out, it doesn't appear that everyone is going to be a beneficiary of US resettlement uh, anyway, that there'll be many people uh, who don't get a place. Um, but the other real question is, will it ever reach 1,250? Because, um, you know, there is this so-called extreme vetting uh, being applied. This is the, the term, of course, used by um, Donald Trump when he um, became president, that he would, um, uh, and after the spat with Malcolm Turnbull, uh, you know, in their first conversation, he talked to, Donald Trump talked about imposing extreme vetting. Now, no one still knows quite what that means, uh, but uh, there are concerns, I guess, that remain about whether uh, that extreme vetting could, you know, impose even tighter uh, even tighter screening, you know, principles or, 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 you know, practices which could exclude people that would otherwise have been, you know, up for a place of, uh, of resettlement. Besides the US, there is still no, no other option uh, that the, the Australian government has come up with, despite the fact that Australia retains both legal and moral and practical responsibility for the fate of these, of these men, women and children. Because Australia continues to say that uh, people won't be resettled in our country uh, and has still not been able to find another country to take up what, are, what is our responsibility, uh, people remain in this, in this extremely dangerous limbo. And uh, I want to go to a slightly different issue now, David. And uh, I mean, speaking of the US, we saw earlier this year the, the limits to uh, President Donald Trump's executive power with his attempted executive order to ban migration from certain countries. And we saw a very strong uh, backlash and, and lobbying I mean, a lot of work done by lawyers over there to have that overturned. But here in Australia, we've had the Immigration Minister, Peter Dutton, um, seeking to enhance his powers. And there's legislation to be uh, introduced and debated in Parliament this coming week, but uh, this uh, particular bill would allow the Immigration Minister to override the Administrative Appeals Tribunal um, on matters related to citizenship, as I understand it. How significant is this push and, and what might the effect be? Well, it's very significant. It's another um, move in, in, in a really disturbing pattern of uh, yeah, government uh, attacks on independent decision making. Really, it's another uh, attempt to erode the independence of uh, decision making under the rule of law in our country, and it's an extremely serious matter because, at, at the end of the day, um, you know what we're looking at is uh, the minister having another uh, extraordinary personal power. Uh, to decide cases, to essentially take them out of the hands of independent decision makers making decisions under law and hand them to, uh, you know, one politician uh, to decide um, uh, with this extraordinary personal power. And, um, you know, the real threat here, um, you know, is not what the government asserts, and, and, and that is... Um, you know, the, the lack of personal powers for any politician, in this case the minister. I think the real threat here is um, arbitrary powers like these, which are, you know, devoid of due process, which try to strip back fundamental rights to due process and hand them to, uh, you know, give them to the, the you know, one politician in our country. I mean, that is extremely dangerous. And there are no serious cases been made for why we need this. Uh, except 
uh, and it's not a serious case, but the case that seems to have been made is that uh, the government is unhappy with certain decisions that have been made by independent decision makers who have applied, by the way, the law, not their own ideology or, or personal views to those cases. And a government, by the way, on those situ- in those situations, which if it's unhappy can appeal the matter to the court. So instead what we have here is another serious incursion uh, on you know, fundamental principles in our country about who should make decisions and how they should make them. And uh, ordinarily, in our system, as we all know, uh, there are laws that uh, uh, independent decision-makers are charged with to, to apply. And here, instead, we have this power grab, really, by the government and by the minister uh, to wrest those powers out of the out of the hands of independent decision makers in the law, uh, and to, uh, to to make decisions uh, which are, are personal, and which would leave a, a person uh, you know who's refused by the minister with extremely limited ability uh, to appeal it to a court. And uh, you're in Geneva, I understand, David, uh, an apt place to be talking about human rights. Where, where are we at, you think, with human rights? And I suppose the, the uh, refugee crisis that we're seeing around the world, is it is there a sense that it's that it's stabilising, getting worse? What, what's the thoughts? Well, the, uh, the first point really is that in recent years we're, we've witnessed yeah, world-breaking numbers of people forcibly displaced uh, from their, you know, forced from their homes in fear of being persecuted, and uh, you know, since the Second World War, uh, the numbers have been unprecedented. Uh, last year, the UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency, uh, estimated that there were around 65.3 million people who'd been forced from their homes due to those fears. And uh, uh, in Geneva, uh, they've sort of, and this is sort of. Slightly breaking news, I guess, but um, the, uh, of a very you know, dark sort. But the, the deputy high commissioner uh, in Geneva, in a in a plenary session uh, for these consultations, uh, it revealed that the numbers that they're about to put out soon uh, in what they you know, this sort of global survey that they do each year, the numbers are, uh, are not less; they're more. Uh, so, in a broad sense. Uh, the multiplication of conflicts uh, and the failure to address protracted, you know, long-term con- you know, conflicts has been one of the themes. Uh, the, I, I think, really, one of the one of the most concerning elements uh, of the situation is the failure of the international community to really come up with solutions to address uh, the, you know, the terrible uh, global humanitarian crisis and and protracted what they call protracted situations that is where where um, refugees have been uh, essentially in camps or in other situations of displacement for five or more years and many of those situations are now 10 15 20 years so that you know it's a, a baby boy born in a refugee camp now uh, may well die an old man in a refugee camp so that that's the the global picture is not good. Um, it's actually getting worse, not better. Um, but one of the really important developments uh, comes out of the you know the New York, New York Declaration and uh, the Global Compact on Refugees uh, in September last year, which was you know a momentous uh, occasion uh, in New York and a moment and, and potentially uh, a very important 
significant attempt to advance uh, you know the, the rights of refugees worldwide and of migrants um, because there's a new compact and the real question now with this compact which is got these terrible titles such as the comprehensive refugee response framework the CRFF uh, but basically the idea with this is to come up with a, glo- a new global compact um, a new the new grand bargain as they're calling it sometimes uh, to to respond to this terrible situation globally and some of the principles that uh, are being used uh, or, or applied through this compact are the need for uh, a comprehensive and predictable approach to what's called large-scale movements of refugees um, with very practical um, very practical measures to to address them. So that's what I, one of the key things I've been working on in Geneva is, is working with other NGOs uh, and with the UNHCR on um, on development of this because it needs to be bettered down uh, next year. That was the time frame uh, was to uh, essentially come up with a, a plan based on the compact. If you've just tuned in, we're speaking with David Mann, the Executive Director at Refugee Legal. He's uh, currently in Geneva and we're talking about a whole range of issues related to the the plight of refugees and asylum seekers because it is, of course, Refugee Week this week. And uh, closer to home, David, we've heard about the legacy caseload, what's been referred to as a legacy caseload of some 30,000 plus asylum seekers who were brought to Australia in 2012. But due to a, a legal change, they've been sort of left in limbo since then and the government's put a deadline by which they need to apply by uh, apply for refugee status. And as I understand it, that's coming up uh, on the 1st of October. Is uh, that taking up a lot of your resources at Refugee Legal currently in, in making sure that those asylum seekers can lodge their applications properly? Yes, it is. It's, 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 it's really uh, one of the, the, the huge challenges at the moment and is exercising a lot of our time where, where there are, you know, just to, to paint the picture of the challenge at the moment, that uh, this is people who this, this, these are asylum seekers that uh, are, are seeking our help who you know came in the last you know, say four to five years by boat and were left in limbo for yeah, three three and a half years in Australia not being allowed to apply for for protection at all and then in 2015 um, groups of people who arrived um, and you know the, the overall group was 31,000 people but uh, people started to be incrementally allowed to apply, and we're really talking now about assisting the the, the last uh, people in that overall group of thirty one thousand people. So uh, recently, there were about seven and a half thousand people remaining who needed to still apply. The government recently allowed most of those people the ability to apply, uh, and all out of the blue. And then, uh, and then first in January. Uh, wrote to them and said you, you have uh, started to write to people and saying you have only 60 days to apply and then that was bad enough but then even more recently uh, the, the minister announced that people everyone remaining and that's about seven and a half thousand people uh, had to apply by this one october deadline so in victoria just alone there are around four thousand people uh, that uh, desperately need to apply and the reason why they do is because the government has set this arbitrary and completely unreasonable deadline uh, for people to apply by 1 October. Uh, and if they don't, one of the consequences uh, is deportation without even having uh, your case 
presented, let alone considered or heard. And um, and why this is so, you know, so significant in terms of uh, the rights and, and you know, lives of the people we're talking about is that uh, and, and meeting those requirements is extremely difficult. People need legal help to do it uh, because the requirements are extremely onerous, complex, involves over 100 questions for one person, plus a detailed written statement of their fears, you know, which goes into many pages, uh, and all in English. And for, for many or most people, uh, that itself is a huge barrier, let alone the complexity of the legal system and making sure you get this paperwork right. Because, the, it, you know, a slip of the pen under this process you know, could be a, a death sentence, really. It's so serious. This paperwork is foundational. So... What we're doing is we set up these clinics, these special legal clinics, to give people this, you know, one-off assistance where they come in, sit down with a lawyer and an interpreter uh, for uh, most of a day and leave with the paperwork completed to lodge. And um, it's been um, it's been extremely effective uh, for thousands of people, but given this deadline, uh, it's... Uh, it, we've had to scale up even more. In fact, we're in overdrive, really. But uh, one of the great bits of news is that we have over 550 volunteers and we also have this partnership with uh, 12, 12 major law firms as part of that where they're sending over whole groups of lawyers during the week and, uh, and some are even coming on the weekends and, um, and we're, we're providing, we're scaling up our assistance constantly to try and help as many people as possible. We've kept you a long time, David, but I suppose just because we are in Refugee Week and, as you mentioned earlier, the refugee crisis around the world is escalating rather than, than stabilising in any any way. Um, how, what do you reflect on and, and I suppose what should we and others reflect on um, now when we think about refugees and those seeking asylum around the world? Well, look, I, the first thing, if I can come back to something we talked about earlier, and that is that is the human cost. Uh, of putting people in situations uh, which uh, completely uh, undermine that very objective of refugees being able to rebuild their lives and, in fact, you know, replicate the kinds of inhumanity which people have fled from. So, you know, the human cost is really what's critical here. You know, no amount of money can compensate uh, for that type of treatment and inhumanity. And I think that's one reflection about our country's response is that what we've done, unlike many other countries that have very concerning forms of, you know, very concerning uh, approaches to refugees and also, you know, very serious mistreatment, our country uh, has uh, been not only mistreated refugees in this way but has done it with, with real calculation. You know, it's conscious, calculated cruelty and very deliberate uh, and only for a small amount of people for a va using a, this vast sum of money. And I think that my reflection on World Refugee Day is that our country um, has been and can be much better than this because we have actually, and I think we've lost sight of this many ways, as a country, we were one of the first countries to sign the Refugees Convention. We actually have a long and proud history in our response to refugees, not so much in the last 15 to 17 years, but we have this tradition in the past of also you know, resettling 
you know, with the Indo-Chinese refugees in the 1970s and 1980s, as many of them Vietnamese, we resettled around 180,000 refugees uh, by plane. They didn't even have to get on a boat. You know, we resettled, brought them in by plane. And we've been one of the biggest promoters of human rights globally in, in, in the last sort of four or five decades. So I think that there are many things to draw upon. And also, uh, I also think that um, our resettlement program um, is something to be proud of. We, when we do bring refugees in, and we don't bring nearly enough people in, we could do far more, uh, we have excellent programs uh, which uh, you know, provide people with, um, you know, provide people with that opportunity to rebuild their lives. So, I think we can do much better, um, and uh, and I also think we are much better. But I also think the other critical thing that we need to do is to uh, stop such an isolationist approach, as if we can somehow, you know, uh, in controlling our borders. Uh, and um, and deterring people from accessing the fundamental rights they have to asylum, that we can go it alone, you know, shut the door on the international community. And um, and I think that's a, a real concern too, because this is a a, a a global crisis. It's not a it's not a domestic crisis. It's actually a global crisis, and the the solutions have to be global. Thanks so much, David. It's always good to have you on Triple R. And uh, I don't know, do you say Happy Refugee Week? Yeah, Happy <laughs> Refugee Week. And, and uh, yeah, why not? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much. Thanks, David. <laughs> yeah, it's great to be with you. Thanks a lot. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.